and welcome to The Mission. My name is Ravi Guru-Murthy, and this is the podcast to listen to if you're interested in mission-driven innovation. My guest today is Jonathan Brilly, CEO of the energy regulator Ofgem. I've known Jonathan for a really long time. We worked together on the Climate Change Act and energy market reforms. And in this podcast, recorded before the outbreak of war in Ukraine, we don't talk about the immediate crises in energy with rising energy bills and retailers going out of business. Instead, we talk about the long-term questions, how we get to net zero, and what our energy system will look like in future. It's a really interesting conversation, and I hope you find it brings home the reality of what net zero energy looks like. Jonathan Brilly, welcome to The Mission. Thank you. Nice to see you, Ravi. Really nice to see you. Really great to have you on. Um, uh, I know you're probably incredibly busy right now with the the, the concern about rising bills um, and retail companies and so on. I know that you probably also can't say an awful lot about that, given the situation. So I, I, I wasn't going to sort of spend most of our time on that. But just one question on it, which is almost what are the lessons you've drawn from this gas price spike? And what do you think the, the implications are for energy strategy going forward? Well, let's have a look. There's a lot of lot of things we're learning as a regulator, a lot of things we may need to do differently. But if you if you step back from this and think about the mental frame we've had around the energy transition over the last 10, 15 years, it has been one where gas prices have been extremely low compared to where they are today and much less volatile than they are today. Now, if you begin to think we may be in a world where this is a new normal for the market, where where the risk has gone up as well as potentially the level of prices has gone up. Now, to me, that says quite fundamental things about our strategy. So suddenly the economics behind decarbonisation, the amount of comparative money we might need to pay for alternatives such as renewables looks very different in a world where the gas price potentially may be much higher. So for me, it means that pushing on on diversification of our sources, not being over-reliant on any one particular source of energy, but also the economics now suggests that not only is decarbonisation good for the planet, it is going to be good for our bills too. And I think that's a big change and not one that policymakers have fully absorbed yet. I mean, it's famously difficult to predict gas prices going forward and, and oil prices. What is the, the kind of current conventional wisdom and industry expectation about how sustained the price rises will be over the medium and long term? Well, I mean, the honest answer is no one knows. And I don't think any of us envisage the, the situation that we're in right now. Um, I, I do think some things are clear, though. So if you look at the fundamentals, global demand for gas, I think, is likely to be high and sustained. So we are seeing high demand, for example, from Asia. And equally, um, it's hard to say what the supply response will be. So it's hard to say what the geopolitical factors that are feeding into that. But also, you know, we are hearing from investors that they're thinking twice about investing in new gas fields simply because the world is on a pathway to net zero and therefore the economics of that changes. So really hard to say. I do think over the coming months, we will see continued high prices for a while. Um, But what it does say to me is when you step back from all of this and you take a risk adjusted approach to the way you see the future, then overall, the economics of gas has changed. And that means the economics of climate change has changed. In some ways, you know, we've had these sort of periods of high um, gas prices before, and one of the responses has been you know, more fracking and more investment in that area. Do you see that happening again, or because of the clarity around that net zero and the transition, is that going to be moderated? So look, I, th- I think that there's things that have changed since since we last went through something like this. But just to say, the scale of this is much higher than we had, for example, in in you both you and I had in the early 2010s, where we saw gas prices increase and bills increase. 
It's much, much bigger than that today. But also what's changed is the alternatives have got cheaper. So when you look at wind power, when you look at solar power, when you look at offshore wind and indeed other renewables, the economics of those have come down dramatically. So your two comparators are in a very different place. So particularly when you think about your long term future, it feels to me as if betting more on low carbon sources and less on expecting to find new cheap sources of gas are the way that we're going to square economics and, and gas at the same time. And Ravi, to give you an example, you and I both know we let contracts, or I let contracts, the department let contracts, £150 a megawatt hour for offshore wind. And I, I, you know and I know that people questioned how expensive that was. That was three, four times the market. That is the market price today for electricity, given the gas price. So if you think now that offshore wind's gone down to £40 a megawatt hour, so it's become much, much cheaper, think about how those two things look and what that might mean for our future. Well, that gets us on to what I wanted to try and focus on in this podcast, which, which was um, trying to understand how innovation and social change happens in the energy system. And to start with, I thought it'd be good to look back and say, OK, when you came into working in energy, I think in the mid 2000s, if you knew then what you know now about what things have happened, like the big mm. cost of uh, cost of wind cut being cut dramatically, what, you know, what would surprise you the most? So I, I think... Without doubt, the biggest surprise is the change in renewables. Um, you know, I, I came into a department that was thinking about energy and climate change in the mid 2000s, where we were, I think, the lowest or one of the lowest countries in Europe in terms of proportion of renewable energy. Um, I think I could sort of summarize the perspectives of the industry and the department at the time that this was a sort of interesting sort of side hobby for the energy system. And it was never going to be able to compete with the traditional sources of energy. And there was a genuine debate, even though people were signing up to climate change targets, as to whether this was the right way to do things versus more incremental change, such as moving from coal to gas um, or indeed building nuclear power stations, etc. What we have seen is an incredible change in the economics of those technologies. So I remember seeing feed-in tariffs for solar that were six times the market price. As I mentioned, offshore wind was at least three times the market price and not really much prospect in terms of our analysis of those prices coming down half as quickly as they have. And so, so the biggest surprise to me is we are in a position suddenly in the 2020s where in electricity we hit the renewable goals that we thought were going to be impossible. I mean, indeed, the direction of travel is to move towards those technologies, not to manage away from them. And so that, for me, is, is one of the most successful things we've done. If I had two reflections overall for our strategy since then, there are two things I think I would have, I would have done differently. I think the first is that I don't think as a country we, we aligned our industrial strategy with our energy strategy. So would I have wanted government at the time to make bigger bets on some of these technologies so that Britain was getting more of a share of the gains in terms of the economy, as well as in terms of the energy system from those emerging technologies? I absolutely would. And secondly, I think we still have the demand side to crack. I still think we have the way customers engage with the energy system as a challenge that still hasn't been met either by the industry or indeed by policy or government. That's interesting. Yeah. So we've done better than we thought on renewables, on solar and wind, weaker on efficiency, heating. Also, yeah. actually, CCS and nuclear, I think, has been has been less less progress than we probably imagined. Um, what what do you think actually on the on the renewable side and actually also batteries as well? What do you think what do you think drove that? And was it largely just about technology and investment and uh, China or did government policy play any kind of role in contributing to that acceleration? 
So I think that um, if you look internationally at renewables, I think government policy, you know, collective government policy had three big roles in, in driving that transition. So I don't think it would have happened without government policy. So I don't think we've been in the same place with solar or wind because the gap just seemed too big. So if you're an investor, the idea that privately you get solar from, as I say, six times the market price down to something with which you could compete without policy intervention, uh, the bet would be too big for any fund to be able to make to justify driving that transition. So I think that the, the basic policy and, and regulation did three things. First of all, it, it set up a level of volume that allowed investors to begin to make bigger bets and accepted that it was going to have to be paying for that upfront. So you have to pay more than you'd need to for electricity to get there. The second thing I think that, that policy did was, was in a number of areas, I'd say particularly offshore wind, it provided the platform for innovation. So when you look back at those first offshore wind turbines, which are, you know, the, the stumps of which are still in the sea up in, in Scotland, um, government funding directly was able to support those and to build the platforms to allow that to happen. And thirdly, I think particularly in the UK, using competition in the right way, driving out efficiencies and driving out change in the way we do things has been incredibly successful in just making a big transition from something that was expensive to something that was cheap. So you've kind of got to make sure that investors know there is going to be a market there that they, that's deliverable to them, support them in very early stage investment. And then in, in particular, once you get there, though, scale it and use competition to drive down costs. And that, I think, has been successful in the UK, but has been successful in a number of countries. And if you take that kind of massive reduction, say, in offshore wind that you mentioned, is that largely about economies of scale or are there and just you know bigger turbines and bigger uh bigger bigger plants or what's actually driven the actual cost reduction there so def definitely definitely bigger scale is, is part of it so you know bigger turbines producing more electricity but but what i observe and I, I remember observing this when i was out advising investors a lot of it is the sort of what i'd call the kind of grinding innovation so not the big sort of light bulb moment that makes a massive transition but the incremental innovation in the design of products and the design of the efficiency of products that allows them to be built with, with, with less infrastructure and allows them to operate more efficiently and produce more electricity. So more like a product off the shelf rather than everything being very custom built? Well, and, and more like, you know, engineers looking at a particular function, a particular cog within something and saying, OK, how do we make this incrementally more efficient rather than redesigning the whole thing and making it completely different? So an offshore wind turbine is bigger, but looks like an offshore wind turbine now. But in the, the technology inside it is continuing to be evolved to make sure you can do it more efficiently and more effectively. And also people do more of it. So they, they can scale their workforce, their skills, their, the equipment you need to put these things up, etc. I mean, one interesting feature that you were involved in was the creation of Contracts for Difference. Um, yes. And it's interesting now in that I read that since September, um, Contracts for Difference, which for people who don't understand them, basically involved agreeing a strike price uh, and then um, essentially paying the difference between the wholesale electricity price and that strike price. Yes. Um, we're now in this situation where wholesale prices are so high that um, it, contracts for difference are actually saving us money because um, the operator is actually paying back, um, which is kind of amazing. Um, but do you think do you think that contracts for difference helped in any way in terms of driving? more competition around price than the previous system, which basically involved just a, a fixed level of subsidy over and above the wholesale price? Or, or is, that, is, that, is that not the case? 
So I should say I'm delighted when I get the LCCC coming to me and saying, when you're calculating the price that bills have, customers have to pay, um, those renewables are now contributing to downward pressure rather than upward pressure on prices in, in the current circumstances. So that is that is really good to see because the other regime isn't doing that. You know, people are being paid over and above the market price. How substantial is that right now? How much of a reduction are we seeing? So I'll have to I'll have to come back to you on the figures, but it but it mm. but it's pretty substantial actually. It certainly will be. Mm-hmm. Um, in the next quarter, next year, uh, mm-hmm. there's complicated issues about who's hedging and who hasn't against that payment. But you're certainly seeing a net inflow into customers' bills. So it's costing us less um, than, than we'd otherwise pay if we had a different system. The, um, what, I think, what I think Contracts for Difference did, I think, first of all, it gave investors real certainty over what they're getting. So the really simple version of, of the whole of, of that part of market reform was if you're building a concrete post in the sea with a big turbine on top of it generating electricity, um, it's much easier to finance if you know how much you're going to be paid per unit. Then all you worry about is building it well and then making a clear estimate of, of what the project might deliver. And so, so that, compared to a system where you're relying on the unreliable gas price, which can go up and down as well as up, meant that investors were, were, were clearer and therefore the cost of capital was lower. The second thing I think it did was um, was exactly that, was it introduced competition. And one of the really fascinating things for me was comparing the way developers behave in a competitive world to the way they behave in a world where someone, usually government, is setting the price. Now, if you take the, the latter, first of all, take when government sets the price, you as a developer spend a lot of your time trying to convince government it's really expensive. And then when you get a price... All of your suppliers look to you as a developer. They know what you've got. They've broken it down and they price accordingly. So almost you lose any pressure within the supply chain to deliver efficiently because at every stage, everyone is building in contingency that then no matter how good you are as a regulator or government, you end up building into your final calculations and you take what I call sort of very cautiously sensible decisions. So you say, well, we can only really reduce cost by X. Whereas in the world where you're competing, you will find developers saying, we've costed this at 100, but we're going to bid 80 because we want to get the contract. And we're just going to figure out how we get rid of the 20 in the four years we've got to build the project afterwards. So a totally different dynamic is there because suddenly then you've got a developer going through each piece of their supply chain and saying to each of their suppliers, if you want this contract, you have to show me how you can deliver, at, let's say, 20% less than you otherwise would. And to me, that, that made a surprisingly large difference. And just to give you, keep, to keep our eye on the numbers, as I said, we started on 150. We had a big campaign and a big industry kind of movement to say, by 2020, we'll reduce that 150 to 100 in the old regime. And everyone was talking about how ambitious, how difficult that would be, and, and really how we'd all really need to work together to make that possible. When we introduced competition, it went from 150 to 100 in the next year, down to 50, and then now down to about 40, 45. <laughs> which is pretty much the same price and, in fact, a lot cheaper than conventional technologies. So it just shows you if you put it in the hands of the people who can genuinely make a difference and you create the incentives in the right way, you'll get far more than you ever expect from innovation to drive down, you know, drive down both cost and efficiency. And I'm sure you get that in other technologies as well. Well, yeah, let's come on to that in, in, in a second. I mean, just looking forward now, if, you, if we paint a picture of how the energy system might look you know, 10, 20 years time when we're in a net zero world, it will be, it'll be, you know, your job will be very different. The electricity system will be very different. Can you just paint us a picture of what that might look like? 
Well, well, let's stand back from, from where we've come from. So if you look at all those policies we've described, Ravi, they're all really government and the regulator pushing technologies, trying to develop technologies, trying to get them on the grid and get them to be able to scale. I kind of characterize the next 20 years as being able to adapt the system to allow those technologies to grow much more organically. So if you've got a wind farm that now could be one of the cheapest forms of electricity, the real question is, how do we generate a system where households and, and businesses can effectively use the energy that's being generated and, uh, and distributed in a very different way? So when I think of the future, I think we are having to move to a much smarter, much more flexible system, both in the way we use energy, but also in the way we generate it. So, so, so in simple terms, what do I think is going to happen? You know, I, I think we're pretty clear that we're going to see a huge volume of electric cars over the next 10, 15 years. Um, to some degree, we will see heating move on to the electricity system, whether fully or, 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 or partially with the addition of low carbon gas is an open debate. But either way, suddenly your electricity system is doing two or three times what we expected of it, say, 10 years ago, when really it was lighting your home and running your appliances. Um, so that's thing one. The demands will be much bigger on the system. Thing two is if you have an intermittent set of supplies, it becomes much more important when you use that demand. I mean, indeed, if you want to keep a network that's affordable, smoothing out the demand that you have becomes really important. So you don't need much bigger wires than you otherwise would need. So in, in 10 years time, I absolutely see a system where you plug in your car at nighttime, that car is, is using intelligently the energy system to get you the cheapest possible power and only really charges where there are gaps in the system, both in terms of the network and in terms of the generation that's available. Equally, I can see a world where our houses become much smarter and the way we use energy is all shifted behind the scenes, not, not through anything that we do physically to allow us to make the most of the system and to use it as efficiently as possible. So, you know, you'll see your car battery charged up when you want to drive out in the morning, but it could be done at any time at night, depending on, on what's available and what's the most efficient way for the system as a whole to operate. And within your home, I think a much smarter set of controls around your heating and around the way you use your appliances so that as a customer, you're paying the least, you're getting the same service, we're paying the least. And as a system overall, we're all paying much less than we otherwise need to to get to a net zero world. So it's, it's a fascinating vision of the future. I think one question for me would be, because um, it seems like there's a relative consensus that that is the kind of future. Is there another future that one could imagine where actually energy is so abundant, there's just so much cheap electricity from solar and wind that we just don't need to bother on the, the sort of smart shifting of demand? So I find that I find that harder to envisage because really, you know, you've got to remember, although stuff is free to generate once you built it, you still have to build it. Um, and secondly, it really does depend on the network you need to transmit all of this. So in really simple terms, I'm sure everyone does what I do with their car. They get home at, let's say, six or seven o'clock at night, stick the plug in the wall and then go out for dinner, go to bed, wake up in the morning, want to drive to work. Now, if you didn't have that system that was adapting, the peak that you would see would be so large that the amount we'd have to spend just on the wires to get it to your house um, and the amount we would spend on having to have backup generation that was ready for that particular time would just be too high. So it is possible we end up in that world. And there are good reasons why we may find ourselves forced into that. So we don't generate the right industries and behavioral change we need to make the smart system work. But if we do that, it's bound to be much more expensive than we need it to be 
and much less efficient and probably much less secure. Yeah. As you were speaking, I was thinking of um, David Mackay, the late David Mackay, who we both knew as the as the, the chief scientist at, uh, at DEC. And um, one of his catchphrases was um, numbers, not adjectives. And the reason I was thinking about that was that I think you talked before about the fact that the electricity system, the capacity might need to be twice or three times as big as it is today. And... I wonder whether it's possible to actually size or, or give some sense of how big a difference using energy smartly could be to smooth out those peaks and troughs. Because it's not just a small idea, this, is it? It could really make a massive difference to the amount of electricity capacity and grid infrastructure we, we, we need. Yeah, look, and we've, we've seen costings of this. So there are studies out there and it is, you know, around £10 billion a year, roughly, roughly. So it's billions and billions of pounds a year, cheaper system to run. Um, just on, just on the wires or on the, on the electricity quest? On the, on the savings overall. So, so 10 billion pounds a year for the, for the system overall. Um, and, if you, and we've seen studies where local networks have tried and said, OK, we're going to compare Street A, where you're, you're plugging in your car and you're, you're doing that in, a, in, a, in the way we do it today. And Street B, we're going to try and do it smartly. And you get almost six times the amount of, of, of use out of your network if you use it differently. So just looking at those two numbers, obviously they're rough. Obviously they are sort of, you know, they're model numbers for the future. But it becomes very clear that, that this is a big economic issue as well as an yep. issue of kind of, of desirability and an issue of climate change. It's very, very hard for me to envisage having a system that is running on a lot of renewables um, and indeed nuclear, which is pretty inflexible, without having some change to the way we use our energy in the first place. And also, Ravi, I think there's a lot you can do in the home. You, you, I mean, you mentioned being interested in, in, in home innovations. You know, just thinking about how we heat our homes right now, which is we heat the whole of the home over a particular period of time, very, very roughly compared to how we actually use the home as an amenity. You could imagine a much more smart and effective system being able to do that in a way that reduces bills for everyone. I mean, one aspect of, of this future energy system is that where the energy is produced and when it's consumed matters loads more than it does today. So locality matters and timing matters. Exactly. Um, how big a change to sort of the way the electricity market works do you need to actually get the incentives right to, to drive um, you know, an, an effective system? So does it require um, you know, quite big changes in price signals or even the way we structure our energy market? Yeah, um, and we've, we, we've done a lot of thinking about this. So, you know, we asked ourselves the question, well, you know, if, if that's a destination you're trying to get to, which with the addition, particularly with the addition of electric cars becomes more and more compelling, well, what kind of market would you need to get there? Um, and we almost started just trying to frame the question. So we said, well, how, how can we think about it in a way that allows us to get under some of the trade-offs you might have to make as a policymaker or a regulator? And, and we start with a very simple frame, which was, you know, do we need sort of more central planning do, or more system planning overall? Um, and do we need something more centralised with a you know, big brain behind it? Or do we need something more market-based and more kind of laissez-faire that allows the different price signals to drive behaviour? Um, and we sketched out in different quadrants what those models might look like. And the answer is, you know, strangely and paradoxically, you probably need more of both. So if you think about the system as a whole, you think about the fact that we're now building a grid offshore, which is, is is going to look and feel much more like the grid that's onshore. So not just simple wires to each wind farm, but actually a more integrated and more strategic grid that allows us to make best use of resources 
that it will extend you know halfway to other countries and be shared with other countries um and and do you think also about what needs to happen locally in terms of the way you make the transition from let's say gas-fired heating to heat pumps or gas-fired heating to to heating that can use hydrogen um you realize that there is going to need to be more strategic planning both at national scale but also at the local level but equally you're going to need to set up a market that allows us to make the most of participating in this smarter world so the kind of vision is is that if you get the economic signals right so if you and i know that if we buy charger x for our our car or we have our car enabled in, in a smart way and we begin to buy appliances that can play into this whole system we're going to save money that's going to make a difference to us if you know that you're much more likely to participate in the system that we're describing and put the technology in place that you might need if on the other hand it's really not providing any economic benefit at all um, it's hard to envisage any other behavioral change metric really driving the same change that you need particularly when you're not just talking about the type of appliance but you're talking about that appliance participating in the system in an ongoing in an ongoing way so, so so the way we see it is you're going to need something at the center and that's why we've been pushing on the reforms to national grid that allow us to to make that planning function truly independent and, and very very powerful but also you need to set up markets that operate at a very local level you know almost street by street that allow each of us to make sure that we can play into the system in a way that benefits us and, and benefits others around us so you were talking there about the the independent system operator which is something you've you've proposed but What's the what's the sort of local institution that's required, and it, you know, it does this require um, local governments or, or cities and city regions to play a bigger role than they currently do? So, so my instinct is that when you take the next part of this transition, so when you take the transition to transport and the transition to heating, it's really hard to envisage doing that without strong strong local involvement and strong local leadership you know if you just think about the, the sort of campaign you'd need to run and the process you'd need to run to to be, to begin a transition to low carbon gas or to begin a transition to to electricity being the form of heating that we're going to use i think there is absolutely going to be some form of a bigger role for mayors and for local government in in driving all of that forward i also think they are an underutilized resource for making real significant energy efficiency improvements for example or community scale improvements. Um, I think technically you'll need to align that with a function that is planning the system. So either as part of the distribution network, as part of the local network function, you would align you'd align local leadership with that, as we're doing already in, in the process to design our local networks for the next five or six years. Um, or you could envisage a world where you had something that was a bit more separate, that was designing things in the way that the system operator was doing nationally. And that's one of the choices I think we're going to face over the next five years. And this is a really boring question, Jonathan, but what um, is, it, this gets you into sort of local government boundaries, which we'll know to have everyone completely asleep. But um, is this a sort of is this about the 150 local authorities or is it about a regional level or unfortunately something in between? I just worry about the the complexity of, uh, of organising the geography and making sure that the different things are coterminous. That's hilarious. I think we need to tell everyone on this podcast, Ravi, that you and I used to work in local <laughs> government policy and we have actually cleared a pub through boredom in the conversation we've had about this sort of thing. So I think that's a personal achievement you and I should be proud of. I, I, suspect, <laughs> I suspect it will be at city regional level is, is, is my best guess in terms of how you would be able to convene the right things to make that work. But I suspect, you know, as you know, with local government, things are never perfect. 
And actually, it's probably the involvement of different levels for different issues that's going to make sense. So if you're, right. you know, if you're running a kind of community level process to transition from one form of heating to another, that may well be your boroughs and your, your, your very local councils. But if you're thinking strategically about the resources that a region needs, then you're, you're much more likely to do that at a mayoral level. And I do observe, you know, the mayors really are becoming a real form of leadership on this change already and have a very strong voice. Yep. Um, in the way that their localities are tackling climate change in a way that 10 or 15 years ago just simply wasn't there. So if you look at Manchester, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Liverpool, lots of places are thinking hard about how they might evolve and how they might meet their own climate goals. And they can't do that without this planning function sitting behind them in some form. Mm-hmm. I mean, one big net zero change that we've, that's got a lot of momentum, obviously, is electric cars. Um, but one big potential constraint is the rollout of charging infrastructure, um, do you think that's something that is just going to happen as a function of growing demand? Or is there a kind of chicken and egg issue here where, um, you know, unless it exists, we won't actually get the, the people buying the cars and vice versa? And yeah, what, what's, how do you foresee getting this right? So we should start by saying electric cars are amazing. So if you think that, you know, all the effort collectively, globally, we put into driving the transition in wind, driving the transition in solar... Electric cars have had much less support than that, but they have, you know, almost found their way into the market in a completely different way. So if you look at the the balance between public policy and privately driven innovation, it's very different. So, you know, the Tesla model was remarkable. They didn't start by saying, I need a subsidy. I need to get the price down to the same price as a a Volkswagen Golf or something else. They, they, They simply said, we are going to develop this technology by going to the luxury market and we're going to use that scale to get down to a, a technology that competes. And then all the other companies had to provide an alternative alongside that. And I do think actually the role of business in taking a leadership role in that. So actually deciding they were doing this um, in part to support the, the transition to, to, to climate change goals is a really interesting case study, actually. And it'd be good to see what we could learn from, from that transition. In terms of charging points, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that between regulators and policymakers, we will take enough of a risk to make sure that the resources and the charging points are there ready for for, for the increase in in electric vehicles. All of us, I think, are pretty clear that under any circumstance, even where government wasn't going to provide any push or any support for this technology, you're going to see electric vehicles grow just because the economics, a bit like renewables, are changing so fast and, and making these technologies much, much more affordable. Um, so I think, you know, with the work Ofgem's already doing in providing funding for, for both the national and the local networks to get charge points and through the planning that both national and local government are doing to get those charge points in the right place, I'm sure it's a solvable problem. So I suspect you'll see investment ahead of demand. I expect you'll see the infrastructure having to appear before people get the confidence to buy cars. But I think you're almost at a tipping point already with some of that stuff. Got it. Now, I just want to move on. So we've, we've touched on heating and home decarbonisation. And I just wanted to pull you onto that in a, in a bit more uh, detail, because it is an area which has struggled and it's not had the same degree of, um, of progress as, as electricity. Um, what, what, what's your view about the kind of biggest barriers to getting an acceleration of um, heat decarbonisation and energy efficiency in the next decade? So I think you've got You've got you've got two separate issues. I, I do think you have a competition right now between two technological alternatives. 
And it may be the answer is a hybrid. You know, may, we, may, we may pursue both at the same time. But you've got electric heating, principally heat pumps, and you've got low carbon gas, principally hydrogen, as the two sort of front running technologies that, that, that will provide us what we need um, in terms of, of low carbon heating, i.e. either through low carbon gas or through electricity where we decarbonize the grid further. Um, and just, can I just pause, you, pause that, pause that on that. Are you, are you genuinely agnostic at the moment and about that choice or do you, because some people would say, look, you know, you, well, you know, there's very strong views on either side of this debate, <laughs> but um, obviously as a regulator, you have to be incredibly neutral, but do you think it is a kind of um, an open race? So I remember one of the biggest rows in the Department of Energy and Climate Change in 2010, 2011, was between people who believed in heat pumps and people who didn't. And um, I think that that debate is um, is still there. I think, you you know, observationally, you can see the movement in heat pumps. So you can see that they are becoming, potentially becoming a viable technology. And I'll tell you some of the issues with them in a minute. Um, but government has put a big bet behind hydrogen. And, you know, if one thing, Ravi, we, we all know is that calling things too early is usually leads you to the wrong decision. So take us back to what would surprise us from 10, 15 years ago. I think you and I would have thought the idea of having lots of solar in the UK was probably not the one that was going to fly. And there are other cheaper technologies like nuclear that were big, powerful and much more substantial that were going to be a big part of our energy mix. And even, you know, the late David Mackay used to have that view, for example. So we've got to accept that things do things do change. I would I would characterise about... Yes, to be fair to another minister called Greg Barker, <laughs> who probably lots of officials used to sort of nod along to and say, yes, yes, Greg, I'm yeah. sure that'll come true, this golden future of renewables being very cheap. And actually it turned out that he was probably more right than some of the uh, the people who knew more. So if you could monetize civil service eye-rolling when he said that, then you'd, you'd be very rich by now. And he was probably closer than any of us. So, um, so yeah, so you've, you've got to be careful about, about calling things too early. I think on the heat pump side, the technology still needs to adapt. I, I think that it's becoming increasingly attractive for people to put heat pumps into their homes. But there is a lot of work on doing with heat pumps what we've done with renewables. So taking a technology, working hard to make it more efficient and thinking harder about the adaptability for users. So, so I'm pretty optimistic that there will be technological development that will ov overcome some of the barriers to, to bringing this into people's homes. There's clearly a system and you know markets question then about how the, the electricity system would need to adapt to support all of that. And then the low carbon gas side, you know, I think hydrogen as a concept is proven but trying to demonstrate that at scale and trying to use that scale to drive down the cost is, is still a challenge that needs to be needs to be addressed. And it it almost comes comes back also to the relationship between the micro and the macro. So one vision of the world of the country that may, you know, that, that some people have is that hydrogen almost becomes your balancing fuel. So as well as heating your homes, it becomes the thing that stores all the energy you need for winter because it's gas mm -hmm. and you can store gas. And then allows you to, to fuel turbines and to fuel our homes over time. So it offers a, a form of seasonal storage, for example. So it does have advantages, but, but the pace that it needs to change at to keep up with the technological revolution happening elsewhere is something that is quite fast. So you've got these two alternatives that, are, that genuinely are still competing. And I've visited both a, you know, a, a futuristic electricity-based home and I've visited a, a, a futuristic hydrogen-based home and seen both of them as alternatives in action. Um, 
but I think you for each of them there are different barriers that need to be overcome and I do think ultimately not us government will need to make a call because really when you look at the system behind it the fact you have a massive gas network across the country this is a strategic economic question ultimately and not one that that's really based house by house but it feels but it feels like but just on that point Jonathan it feels like the the way in which those technologies innovate and grow is quite different in the sense yes. that right now I can go out and actually go and get an air source or ground source heat pump um, whereas I can't go and get a hydrogen boiler it de- that one would depends on government making some quite big commitments so how do you run a technology race when one of them can actually be led by a consumer and the other one is actually about you and government making some big choices about infrastructure well I think you've got a you know in a, in a sense it's almost what we're doing right now. So heat pumps are being rolled out. They're being supported. And lots of houses, including my neighbor, have just had one installed. Uh, what you've got to do at some point as government or the regulator is take a, a much, much more strategic view. Because if you look at the, the innovation chain for hydrogen, I think there'll be a point where you can dual run. So you can say, well, we, you know, we're piloting, we're testing, we're, and we are indeed supporting projects that will allow us to do that. So we have a project up in Scotland where they're generating hydrogen from an offshore wind turbine and that hydrogen will be used to to, to fuel 200 homes to, to show that the, the end-to-end concept can work. But you're gonna to have to reach a point Ravi, where at some point government will need to make a call because either you're in a world where because everyone is gonna take on a heat pump, the gas network is going to be dimi- you know, hugely diminished in its use or you're going to be in a world where that gas network needs to be completely repurposed to carry hydrogen instead of methane. And that's not something you can do incrementally. That needs to be something that at least by area needs to be done quite strategically. And the second challenge you have in my mind is as numbers of heat pumps rise, you're going to have to think carefully about how a locality adapts and how those people remaining on gas are interacting with a system that contains lots of people using low carbon electricity to heat their homes. So you need to dual, you know, allow the two technologies to progress a bit like, um, you know, big infrastructure electricity projects versus small local solar panels. But at some point, government will need to step in and say we're taking one direction or the other or we've, or we've designed a hybrid that's going to work across the country. Um, and we'll, we'll support that and we'll work with them. But ultimately, that's a political call because the, the economic consequences are huge. A little while ago, you talked about... Um cost innovation innovation in terms of cost reduction of offshore wind and we talked about you know how auctioning and competition and, and contracts for difference help yes. drive some of that cost reduction what are the lessons if any um for how we cut the cost of heat pumps can can we apply any of those to that field so i think um yes i, I think you can i think the innovation challenge is is very different though so, so in a sense, what we did with the, you know, with, with the innovation, you know, with the competition stimulus in the UK and, and not just in the UK, globally, people were driving down costs of things like solar. So I don't think CFDs or, or the UK regime really no, was exactly. a massive part of solar. That was done by countries much bigger than us with, with, with much, much bigger budgets as a result. But, but what it was, was, you know, how do you build this infrastructure in the cheapest and most efficient way possible. But the infrastructure itself um, was either pretty consistent or didn't have any real customer constraints around it. So nobody really needs to worry about how they interact with a wind farm. With a heat pump and with heating and with this need for flexible demand, 
the innovation that you need is as much around kind of user friendliness and attractiveness to a customer and the ability to convince people to accept that things will be done differently uh, as much as it is around kind of sort of grinding out the costs. So for example, can you get a heat pump that behaves much more like a combination boiler? So very simple to use, you know, very, just in the way our, our existing boilers are. Can you get a heat pump that's, that's very user friendly that allows people to interact with it in a different way? Um, and equally, you know, alongside that, can you put in place the technologies that allow us to use our energy in a much smarter way? And that requires, you know, much more product design innovation and people thinking hard about what will make me, you and, and everybody else in the country want to do this as it is about sort of yeah. grinding out the incremental costs. What I'm told and what I probably believe is that if you convince those with the capability and the capacity that there will be a market that that economically allows customers to benefit from that, then certainly the belief is, and I think it is a belief, but I think it's a pretty firm belief, is that they will be able to overcome the same kind of technological challenges. So what worked in EMR was aligning the incentives of what you want innovation to do. And I think you need to design the market in a way that does the same but for a very different kind of innovation journey. Can I just sort of end, Jonathan, by just talking, you know, we've talked a lot about innovation in this podcast and what drives technological change. Um, and that's in some ways quite a challenging role for a, for a regulator yes. because you are an independent economic regulator. You're not there to pick winners. But we are in a world where we do actually have to totally shift a system to net zero. Um, and I think there's, there's two questions in my mind. One is... Um, Actually, what does it mean to be a regulator, an independent economic regulator in a world of net zero where we're driving a transition? Do we need a different sort of concept for what regulation is? Um, and it's obviously more enmeshed with politics as well in that in that, in that that regard. Uh, and then the, the sort of second question is actually about innovation, where, you know, there's lots of examples of sandboxes that regulators have run yep. where they'll, you know, allow rules to be flexed but people often complain that you know what starts in a sandbox stays in a sandbox and it, it doesn't yes. make its way quickly at scale to major changes in rules so what's the role of regulators in in driving innovation so i think you your, your job as a regulator has, has changed almost completely with the one that you would have had five or ten or fifteen years ago where in honesty particularly on the monopoly side your job was to sort of ensure on the, on, on the retail side to ensure competition on the monopoly side to to really grind out efficiencies and in a very kind of fairly brutal way it was about numbers of people operating stuff the number of engineers you need on a system and i think we've we, we've evolved that and gone on a journey already which would have been good anyway um, regardless of, of what's happened with net zero which was stepping back from that kind of almost kind of box ticking slight bean counting sort of role of saying, are you doing things as cheaply as you can, to saying, well, actually, what are you trying to achieve with the network, for example? And and through Rio, the way we run our network regulation, already we've begun to say, well, what are you trying to achieve? And therefore, how do we give you the incentives to do what a customer needs? And, and that's another example where actually getting the incentives right is incredibly powerful. So, so to give a really simple example that, that stuck in my mind since I came into Ofgem, we put a very, very clear economics incentive that said to electricity companies, um, you need to minimize the amount of time that people are off the grid. And we took an aggregate, it's called customer minutes lost, and we put a pretty strong financial incentive behind that. And what it did was it completely changed in aggregate the behavior of the network companies. 
So normally, particularly if you go back to, to the nationalised industry, if, if a wire came down in my village, um, they send someone out, he'd look at the wire, he'd say, well, I need to get a cherry picker, so I need to get someone else to come along, and then they fix <laughs> it, and it would probably take a day, two days, who knows? And I'd wait as a customer until it was back on. What they're much more likely to do mm-hmm. now is to say, well, you've got four houses off over there. We're going to put a generator in place. We're going to keep you on the grid, keep you on electricity, and then we're going to take whatever time, time it takes to fix it. And the difference in approach that companies take on a very basic level um, is the way that regulation is already evolving, even before climate change and net zero took the prominence that it needs. But it feels like to me, you're, you're going to have to be much more focused on that approach. So when you think about mm-hmm. the question you asked Ravi about charging points, you know, the outcome we need is a system that can support electric vehicles across the country. And that means you need a network infrastructure that can support the charge points that you need. So you start from a very, very different basis of, of assessing what you might need and how things might need to change as a regulator. And equally, the market design challenges are, are different. You have, to, you have to take into account what technologies you might need. You have to take into account what might happen in a much more direct way than you would in a very kind of purist economic model of the energy system 10 or 15 years ago. So bluntly, I, I do think even as a regulator, there are times when you need to at least support winners, if not pick winners, in, in the way that you design things. The other thing I think that is changing, and it's hard to change, but it's changing, is also the way we change and iterate our regulations. So coming back to that point about sandboxes, one of the issues has been you create something in a sandbox that needs a different way of charging for your network. It takes years to change the charging regime in a network. And so therefore, for many investors, that, that pathway is just too big and mm. something a concept that people have put to us is finding a more iterative and faster way to course correct and adjust what you need and i don't think we've cracked that but that is something that you may well need to do in a world where technology is changing as much as it, it, it is is out there already and behavior needs to change as much as it needs to change and i think that sort of for me brings something we haven't talked about here across the system, actually, but within Ofgem as well, which is the role of data. So suddenly the granularity of what you need to understand, the speed at which you need to react as a system has become much, much higher. And I do think Ofgem is going to have a role in thinking about the data requirements we have across the system, making sure that those who are supporting the system, like the network companies, are putting in place the, the data systems that we need, but also that we're using data in a completely different way to the way you would 10 or 15 years ago. So, so fundamentally, I, th- I think what we are doing is, is, is naturally changing over time, and I think it will continue to do so. But the big task is, is, is supporting and building a flexible system that can take on the next stage of decarbonisation. Jonathan Brealy, thank you so much for, for joining us. It was really, really fascinating chatting to you. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you.